Welcome to Health and Veritas. I'm Harlan Krumholtz. And I'm Howie Foreman. We are physicians and professors at Yale University. We're trying to get closer to the truth about health and healthcare. This week, we'll be speaking with Dr. Lisa Sanders. But first, what's got your recent attention, Harlan? Thanks, Howie. Uh, there's just a couple of things I thought would be worth going over this week uh, before we get to Lisa, which would be a terrific interview. Uh, one is, I just don't know if you noticed, uh, one more paper came out, at least one more preprint was published on ivermectin. And guess what it showed? It doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work. So anyway, this is an NIH study that randomized 1,206 people. They received study medication or placebo, and uh, people were on average were 48 years old and about 60% were women. And, and many of them had received uh, vaccine doses. But, but anyway, what they looked at was whether or not myvermectin would help in the recovery time. And it didn't. 11 days for recovery in the ivermectin group and 11 days in the placebo group. I don't know how many of these studies that we need to see, but this was another Another disappointing study for ivermectin. I, you know, now I'm wondering, like, did it really merit all of the money that we spent on the studies? But I, I guess it it's a great so question, Harlan. I, I, I think it was the Brazilian study that was the one that everybody hung their hat on and said it works. And you start to wonder, like, how much fraud may have been underlying that or at least somebody not being methodologically uh, clear. Yeah, yeah. I want to hop just quickly to the vaccinations. I don't know, you may have seen this newsletter that uh, Kate uh, Jedalina puts out. It's actually one of the best things. I like reading what she does, what Topol does. You know, there's a couple of people out there who really are consolidating the literature, but they both actually had, had columns this week. I think Eric in Substack and uh, Kate Jedalina in her newsletter. But basically, again, hammering home how the evidence for these fall boosters seems to be pretty secure, that there's greater protection against infection and even maybe some transmission, broader protection that, you know, these antibi the antibodies we're producing can see more parts of the virus and attach more strongly compared to the antibodies that we may have had before, longer protection. And this week, there were a couple of new studies out of the U.S. And, and out of the U.K. that continued to basically strengthen the evidence behind it. Two studies in the U.S., by the way, and one out of the U.K. That, that, again, was suggesting that we get this kind of protection. People need to just be thinking about this again in terms of risk. The way I take it, it, you know, there are low risk groups in our in our population that I'm not going to, you know, really go very far to to try to persuade them about the vaccines. They're they're unlikely to have problems. Healthy younger people in general, but for older individuals or those who may be at risk, uh, it, I can't see any reason why we wouldn't try to protect ourselves and why, as as physicians and public health advocates. We wouldn't try to encourage people to to get this vaccine. So I just wanted to hit that as we get to the holidays. If you know, if you have a loved one, particularly 60 and older, 65 and older, I mean, really, everybody should be vaccinated. The rates are higher in those groups, but lots of people being missed still. That was Eric Topol's message in his newsletter. He said the best gift you could give your family over the holidays is to tell your loved ones, particularly those 60 and older, to get a booster. And uh, couldn't agree more. And I want to point out, Harlan, this is happening at the exact same time that Governor DeSantis in Florida is, is uh, encouraging the convening of a grand jury to investigate the COVID vaccines for misrepresentation and fraud and other things. Um, and it's disappointing. I mean, I think uh, this is a dangerous precedent to have an executive official 
uh, trying to encourage judicial officials to begin in an inquiry when the science scientific community broadly has not questioned the efficacy. Now, there are a lot of questions about reducing transmission, certainly less than we wanted it to be. Are there side effects? There are, and we've talked about them. But it's a, it's a scary time that there are major, uh, very well-respected uh, authorities out there who are discouraging people from vaccines to this day. Well, you know, Galileo was uh, questioned quite severely about his idea that the sun was at the center of our solar system. So took some time. You know, there's a long history of this, but it is disappointing when the evidence is so strong that these vaccines really were major miracles, really, in the time that they were produced, the lives that they they saved, and yet to have uh, it be politicized this way. By the way, he was in favor of vaccines at the beginning, you know, so I don't know, maybe he'll subpoena himself to talk about what his views were before. All right, let's let's pivot and talk to Lisa. And, and uh, this I'm real excited for this interview. Dr. Lisa Sanders is an associate professor of internal medicine at the Yale School of Medicine and a practicing physician, but oh, so much more. She's a medical author, a journalist. She writes the diagnosis column for the New York Times Magazine section, which covers medical mystery cases. Her column inspired the hit TV series House MD, for which she serves as a consultant. She's released books such as Every Patient Tells a Story, Medical Mysteries, and The Art of Diagnosis, and Diagnosis, Solving the Most Baffling Medical Mysteries. In 2019, she collaborated with the New York Times on a widely acclaimed eight-hour documentary series on the diagnosis process for Netflix. Dr. Sanders received her bachelor's degree in English from the College of William and Mary. And after graduation, she worked at ABC and CBS. And at CBS, she won an Emmy Award for outstanding coverage of a breaking news story for coverage of Hurricane Hugo. She then enrolled in Columbia University's post-baccalaureate pre-medical program and received her medical degree at the Yale School of Medicine. And I just want to say the most important thing I have to say today is that my father has been asking about when we're going to have you on the podcast for like many, many months at this point. So thanks for being here just for my dad. I want to start off with, you have had an unusual path to medicine and you're frank in talking about it, but I'd love to hear your thoughts reflecting back now. You graduated here about 25 years ago or so, and I'm curious to know when you first planned this journey to transition from journalism into medicine, did you have this in mind and how has it been different from what you expected? That's an interesting question, but first, can I tell you, can I say, Howie, Please tell your father that the check is in the mail. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I will. So uh, how did I, did I think that this was going to be what I did? No, when I decided to go to medical school, I thought I loved television, but I thought it was a little bit boring. It was a little repetitious. And so I was ready to do something new and different. And one of the things that I thought was a plus about going to medical school and becoming a doctor is that the process was also going to be something different. So I would do medical school and then I would do residency and then I would be some kind of doctor. And I thought, oh, so that's going to keep it various right from the start. Um, And I didn't think of myself as continuing a career in journalism, certainly not television journalism. Uh, I thought that was done and I was moving on to the next part. But I have to say, when I did my internal medicine rotation, 
and went to this meeting that happens every day called Resident Report and saw how they presented a case from the time the patient sort of entered medical care until a diagnosis was made, that blew my mind, blew my mind. And I thought, oh, this is important because I covered medicine when I was in television. I covered it for like seven or eight years. I thought right. we understood medicine, but it turns out I didn't know bubkas, nothing. <laughs> I certainly didn't know anything about that. I figure if I don't know about it, who does? Anyway, so that started me on my journey, and I had no expectation that that's where I would go, but that's where I found myself. Well, you're, you're a gem in medicine now. You know, you're someone who <laughs> helps the, the, those who have lost hope to, to, to help their stories be told about what happened and, and how, in so many cases, solutions and answers were found, and maybe that's led many others to be helped, too, as they've, they've heard those cases. But you, you and I talked about this, so... I said to you, so are you Sherlock Holmes? You said, I, you're not Holmes. Uh, who are you? I am not Sherlock Holmes. If you've ever read Sherlock Holmes, you know that he, except in two cases, does not tell his own story. His story is told by his close friend, the physician, Dr. John Watson. Dr. John Watson is a doctor who writes about people who make <laughs> amazing discoveries, mostly, you know, his good friend Holmes. That's that's who I am. I am the doctor who writes about these doctors who make these important diagnoses. Every now and then, I'm that doctor, but it's like Holmes telling his own story. It's rare. Most of the times, I tell other people's stories. When, when I read your, your excellent column, and always I find it riveting, you know, to sort of follow the course of these individuals and to know that there's going to be a you know, an, an answer at the end or something, in most cases, not all actually, by the way, in most cases, there will be resolution. I think that there must be thousands of people like this who never find resolution, that, that in fact, those people may be the lucky ones, that somebody, they found some astute person who made some astute observation that led to resolution and identification of something that no one else had seen before. It makes for great drama, but I worry that the quality of our healthcare is such that there are many people who fall through the cracks and actually don't get that. You said how, how sort of energized you were by this residence report, the way that we teach doctors to reason and to, to, to identify diagnoses. But are we really doing it the right way? I mean, in this era of technology, and I know you're a person who really loves the person-to-person -person interaction, the, this sort of old school medicine, but I wonder whether or not we're doing a disservice not to figure out how we can take the data that's generated about the patients and help doctors perform even better so that, that many of these lessons aren't lost. And it's not a matter of just reading your column and remembering some, something that happened to someone else, but that we're more systematically ensuring proper diagnosis. How have you thought about that? I mean, there's no one who's thought more about diagnosis over the sorts of career than you have, but what can we do to do better? Because these people are lucky enough to find answers. Not everyone is. Well, let me just say that never in the history of medicine have your chances of getting the right diagnosis been greater. You know, and I would not suggest that doctors are not doing their jobs. Doctors are doing incredible things with an unbelievable amount of information, an amount of information that grows every day. So I agree that technology ought to be there. And to be honest, technology is there not enough, um, and it's not perfect, but you know, patients often 
Google their symptoms. I write my column knowing that some people are going to read it in the New York Times, but it lives forever on the internet. And somebody who has, you know, uh, uh, legs that, sh that don't let them stand up straight is going to go to my column. And one of the things that they're going to see is, you know, the possibility that, that they have, you know, this orthostatic tremor that keeps people from standing up or all these other interesting things. And I'm not the only person who's doing it. So I think there are resources for patients. It's not enough. You know, you, you and I uh, have in common a former medical student who unfortunately passed away way too young. Um, but you wrote about him uh, being central to diagnosing a patient probably 10 more years ago right now. Um, but I remember how excited he was that he was part of your story. And I haven't heard you talk about that part of it, how much you're elevating the common man and woman in medicine who are part of these essential teams that make diagnoses. Um, I'm curious to hear what feedback you get from them about being part of the story. Um, well, first of all, that was one of my chief complaints about House, is I don't write about a single genius Sherlock Holmes like House. I write about all these doctors because we all live for the possibility that we will make a terrific diagnosis. You know, I remember yes. one of my great mentors, I asked him if he'd seen any good stories lately. And he said, no, you know, it's strange. I guess I've been kind of tired and distracted. I haven't really been paying attention. And, you know, I thought that was so great because of course that's what it is. We know that they're all out there waiting to be discovered. And the doctors who write, you know, who I write about, I mean, I'm, I'm, I hope they, good things happen to them. Uh, no, I've only heard good things from them, but most of the time, you know, they just move on with their life and we don't really connect until they find another great case. I really encourage repeat offenders. <laughs> Talking about House, I I'm intrigued by your involvement in it. And what was your experience of it? You know, I've told you also, one of the concerns was that actually people see House as, as someone to emulate. Of course, his manners and, and patient interactions weren't something that, that were, uh, I think, something to, to, to think that you would want to emulate. But what, what was your experience working with them and how did you think about the evolution of that character? Well, first of all, People, when House was on the air, he's been off the air for a decade, but when he was on the air, people would go, aren't you worried that they, he's going to be a bad role model for medical students and they're going to treat patients with the kind of personal disregard that House does? <laughs> My feeling is, are you kidding? Anybody who thinks that they can learn how to be a doctor by watching a TV show should be drunk from the core. I mean, really, you should know better by now. But I have to say, I loved working with the writers and the producers on House. I thought it was a hoot. They were so smart, so thoughtful, so funny. And, uh, you know, so they would call me or send me emails and say, what about this or what about that? Or do you have any good ideas for this person? And, you know, uh, I would try to steer them to towards accuracy. I didn't always win, like in the third <laughs> season. I remember Tommy Moran, one of my favorite writers ever, wanted to indicate some sort of oral genital contact between two consenting adults. 
And so he had the guy get bacterial vaginosis in his mouth. I said, you know, Tommy, that's never going to happen. First of all, bacteria don't like that environment, those bacteria. Second of all, if they did, they wouldn't be called bacterial vaginosis. It would have some other name. <laughs> and so that's I gave him a few other, you know, I said, why don't you make a gonorrhea or, you know, some of these other things, other possibilities. You know, I wrote him this long email. And he wrote me back like two lines and says, yeah, mine's funnier. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right, right. So, I mean, I tried to be uh, accurate, but only to the extent that it didn't interfere with entertainment, which is, of course, what the show is about. You, you have continued to practice clinical medicine, and most of the medical writers I know don't, or they really uh, phase it down earlier. Um, I'm curious to know, and you certainly don't need it for the writing you're doing because you're well-informed and you know what you're doing. Uh, what keeps you going? I love my patients. I love seeing patients. I love, uh, I don't know, I just love it. It's fun. It's great when somebody comes to you and says, I have a problem with this. And then you work with them to try to figure out what it is and how to how to take care of it. Um, you know, I was just on the phone today with, the, with the, one of my patients who I've known forever. Um, and he has pretty bad cirrhosis, decompensated cirrhosis. And he was saying, you know, I was just taking my pulse the other day. That You get patients who like take their pulse every day. And, he, and it went down to the 40s and I'm really worried. I haven't been taking the beta blocker that I desperately need so I don't have another esophageal bleed. But I can't take it because I'm worried that it's gonna make my heart stop and I'll die in my sleep. I'm like, okay. That's an interesting yeah. problem. You know, I mean, it's always it's always interesting and it's always human. And uh, uh, I love that. You can't get that any other place. I, I wondered if you want to maybe talk a little bit about what you're thinking about doing next. I know that, you know, you're, you're about to embark on a, a new phase of your clinical career. And uh, I don't know if you wanted to talk about it a little bit. Absolutely. You know, um, I love my patients and I hate saying goodbye. But I am saying goodbye to my patients because I'm moving into a, a new area of medicine. I'm going to set up and then run the long COVID clinic. To me, this is just an extension of something that I do all the time, which is take people with you know unusual symptoms and try to help them figure it out. In some ways, we know where the symptoms are coming from. They have long COVID. Now they have symptoms afterwards. And yet we really have no idea what drives most of this disease process. We have thoughts, we have theories, we have possible treatments, but we don't know anything. And that's kind of exciting. You know, being on that frontier of trying to figure things out, that's that's something new and different for me. And I'm, I'm very excited about the possibilities. Yeah, I think we're so lucky that you've decided to move in this direction. I think the field will benefit so much, but just wondering, I mean, do you have any trepidation about this, given that you know, we're at such an early phase of understanding how to help people who who are stricken by it, so many different symptoms and for which there's so much mystery around exactly what's causing it and, and how to help. Well, of course, it's terrifying to look at a patient straight in the face and go, I don't know. Not only do I not know, I don't know anybody who does know, and I don't know what we're going to do about it. But, but I've been doing that for a long time. You know, people come to me, uh, I don't seek them out, but 
patients all the time come with symptoms that we can't understand. And here's how you can tell as a doctor that you don't understand when your second thought is, well, maybe it's all in their head. You know, that's when you're up against it. Um, and so I think it's going to be, I think it'll be hard. I am worried that I don't have that much to offer, that we don't have that much to offer, but I, I don't know. I have confidence that I'm going to be able to help at least some of them. That's true. So uh, going back to your writing, you um, are one among a long line of great Yale medical writers. I mean, it's a, an incredible history. It's, it's, it's hard to explain. Maybe you can help us understand it better. But I also want to point out you've been an incredible mentor to so many people um, in, in the current Yale faculty who also do writing. What advice do you have for people in medicine about if they wanted to become Lisa Sanders or if they wanted to do different types of writing or journalism and medicine? I've been unbelievably lucky. And anybody who thinks that luck is not an important part of their career really isn't paying attention. So I've been unbelievably lucky. But, you know, luck comes to the prepared. And one of the things that you have to be prepared for in writing is rejection. And you just have to ignore that. You know, when I first proposed my diagnosis column to an editor, um, he was very nice, but he was like not interested. And um, after a year, he went on to his next opportunity and the guy who replaced him was interested. And that's how my column came into existence. If the first editor hadn't left, I would have never started on this and I would be doing something else, still seeing patients, but you know, maybe something else. So I think the thing to do is to just keep trying, you know, and not to think if you're rejected, there's something wrong with my product or there's something wrong with me or there's something wrong with how this is written. You know, if you get rejected a lot, you know, two or three, three or four times, then it's time to go back and revisit and think how I'm, maybe I'm not expressing myself as clearly as I thought, or maybe I'm not making this point as clearly as I thought. You might show it to somebody else and get other people's input. But the, the point is that you have to keep trying. Um, doctors are thoughtful and careful and at the, in the presence of some of the most important things that are happening in the world right now. We need to get our expertise and opinions out there. Other people have no problem having many, many opinions about lots of things they don't know squat about. We, who know, should, should be out there in the world. As we get to the end here, I just wonder if you could give people maybe a sense of the process that you follow. It's, your comms are so remarkable. I was just wondering, how does it go? I mean, you, you, maybe you hear about a situation, but then, then what do you do next? I mean, the columns are so rich, they're detailed. It seems like you talk to everyone related to that particular case and situation and how, how do you do it? So the first thing is when I hear about a case is I reach out to the doctor because of course nobody is allowed to give me any personally identifiable information about their patient without the patient's express consent. So first I reach out to the doctor and ask him if he would please contact the patient. And then I then once they get permission, I contact the patient and the patient is is a huge source of untapped information, especially among doctors. When doctors talk to each other, the patient is hardly even mentioned. And that's crazy. 
because that's the that's where a lot of the interest lies and certainly that's where all the surprises lie is how the patient interacts with their disease so to me that's a source of information and whenever i'm surprised or worried about something then i know oh that's where it's interesting and exciting you know that's where i need to go is something that goes oh really um sometimes it turns out not to be true the column that i'm working on now when i first heard about it the intern said this guy was insane he's 19 but he, when he got this symptom this crazy rash he looked it up he totally identified what he had and uh and and the patient told me the same thing when i talked to the intern again she's like oh no he he really didn't know all that much so i, I don't know what happened to change the story but you know when a story changes like that it's like oh well that's surprising um but it's always it's always fun it's always interesting people always have something really cool to say if you give them long enough so my technique when i'm interviewing somebody is i say I learned this from August Fortin, who just left our faculty, who just retired. Yeah. I say, yeah. tell me what happened from the beginning. And then I just shut up. Or, you know, I make a few encouraging noises, mm -hmm, uh, nod, because I want to hear it all. I say, tell me the story that you would tell your mom or your friend. I want all the gritty little details. And people are happy to give them to me, and I'm happy to hear them. I think in a time for um, uh, where there's so much uncertainty and where people have developed a, a very high level of skepticism about public health and healthcare, um, one thing I can say is that you have a tremendous amount of trust built around you because you, you do seem to be very transparent about the way you portray stories. Um, and you know I'm gr very grateful for that. Just as a last quick question, has there ever been a case that truly just shocked you, like that you didn't believe it at all and and had to convince yourself it was real? I mean, I'm surprised all the time. Um, it is amazing. I mean, that's it, you make it sound like that's crazy and extreme, but you know, hearing about weird symptoms that go with diagnoses, you know, sort of what I specialize in. I think the one that sticks out to me the most is like this woman who had chronic vomiting and lost like 50 pounds over the course of a year as, you know, people tried to figure it out. And she had, she was diagnosed, of course, I love this, by her primary care doctor who had been unavailable to her um, for some of these hospitalizations. And the primary care doctor walked in and go, what's that thing in your throat? And she had like florid hyperthyroidism, which can occasionally show up as nausea and vomiting. But, wow. you know, she was not born in the United States. And people who are not born in the United States have a much higher rate of having goiters than people who are born here where we have iodine in our salt. So, right. you know, I, I kind of can't believe that something as common as that got missed for nearly a year. But... I kind of understand it. And most of the best cases is where it's like, wow, but you kind of understand it. I mean, you have to, I don't write about dumb docs. We have all made dumb mistakes. Right. We have all had bad days where we're not our best self and there are days when you wish you could undo things that you did or make yourself think things that you didn't think. I don't write about those because that's not interesting to me. 
what's interesting to me is when smart, hardworking doctors are thinking about a problem and sometimes get the answer and sometimes don't. Because that's where it's really interesting to me. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. This has uh, been terrific. And uh, Howie, we have to have Lisa back on the show sometime. Oh, I hope so. And uh, happy holidays to you. And I look forward to hearing more about the clinic as it goes online. Me too. Yeah, the, the clinic's going to be great. Long COVID clinic at Yale. Lisa Sanders running it. It'll be great. I look forward to it. Well, Howie, that was that was just super as expected. And uh, let's uh, let's now we're, we're getting to uh, this part of the show, which I always enjoy, which is hearing your views and, and what's on your mind this week. Yeah. So following the theme of medical journalism, I guess, major news outlets reported quite widely on errors and misdiagnosis occurring in the emergency room. This came from a, a agency for healthcare research and quality study that's still being developed. It's, it's not finalized yet. But the first sentence in the New York Times article was, quote, as many as 250,000 people die every year because they are misdiagnosed in the emergency room. The CNN headline even, even was a little more provocative. More than 7 million incorrect diagnoses made in the emergency room every year. Just one day earlier, the daughter of the well-regarded CNN anchor, Jake Tapper, wrote a piece in CNN Opinion on her own emergency room misadventure, getting a delayed diagnosis of a ruptured appendicitis. So I work in an emergency room. I was there last night. I'm surrounded by colleagues who do the same, and they're actually delivering care directly to the patients. I'm mostly reading imaging studies. So it's easy to come at this from a defensive position. So I'm going to try not to do it, but suffice it to say that many errors and many adverse events continue to happen in the hospital and outpatient setting every day. And I'd like to believe we're getting better as time goes on. And the evidence does suggest that we are, but also important to frame these data points properly. Emergency departments see over 130 million patient visits a year. The vast majority of these are getting quick and timely, accurate and impactful diagnoses. And the emergency department has become the de facto multi-specialty clinic of the 21st century. So we can argue about the cost, which is high in the emergency room, but the ability to deliver complex diagnosis and therapy in a single setting is extraordinary. The story told by Alice Tapper about her ruptured appendicitis is concerning. A young woman presents with abdominal pain that she describes as a, a surgical type of pain, uh, but it was not even interrogated with ultrasound, despite the pleading of her and her parents. And quite frankly, it reminded me of the narrative that you and I talked about by Professor Tim Snyder of Yale, the, the, uh, the historian um, and, and leader in understanding fascism. He wrote a book about healthcare. He wrote a book, Our Malady, Lessons in Liberty from a Hospital Diary, about his own horrible encounter in our own emergency room. His viewpoint was made worse by hearing inhumanity all around him. Uh, there's no way I can excuse or explain either Alice Tapper's case or uh, Professor Snyder's case uh, because I don't know all the details, but we can certainly hope for better. There are obvious cases of disease that are reasonably well-defined, and we like to pat ourselves in the back for making some unusual diagnoses. The world of Lisa Sanders, where diagnoses are not obvious in all patients, 
is much more common than we give it credit. Um, Evidence-based guidelines for diagnosis and treatment help a lot, but humans don't always read the owner's manual, and they present in weird ways, as she mentioned toward the end of her story with the patient with a goiter causing diarrhea and I think and nausea. Um, so these are common diagnoses presenting in uncommon ways. And as we've been taught, when you hear hoofbeats, don't immediately consider zebras as the animal that's uh, coming at you. So I bring this up because 35 years of working in clinical medicine has been really humbling for me. I frequently see imaging findings that I've never seen before. Last night was yet one more example. You and I talked about it before the podcast began. Diagnosing a patient is much more challenging than fixing a car or a computer, and the consequences are far more serious. So I'm glad to see this gets more attention, but I really hope the media would be more cautious in creating content that might inadvertently undermine the great work that so many of our colleagues do every day. Yeah, I think you raise a lot. Oh, boy, there's a lot in what you've said. And I think we should ask, by the way, have Tim Snyder on our uh, on our. I thought podcast. about that, yeah. He's got a, some story to tell, and... Yeah. It'd be interesting to explore that with him. There's, I don't even know where to start on this. I'll just say this, that I do think that, as I suggested to Lisa, that medicine has the potential to start putting in place the kind of technology that can elevate our levels of performance. And, you know, we're working on this right now with work that's trying to identify within the EHR actionable insights that can both elevate the performance of the physician and give the patient the kind of information they need to be able to make the right choices about themselves. There's no reason for people who have specific clusters of symptoms, which are almost invariably associated with important diagnoses to be missed. And by the way, that's true in acute disease. It's true in chronic disease. And so I'm hopeful that in this next era, we'll be able to be using data science in ways that actually makes us much better and stronger. There's another piece to this though, which is the emergency department tends to be neglected part of our healthcare system. It's under-resourced. People are lining the walls. The, the throughputs aren't good. Look, you're a management science guy, Howie, and we should be trying to apply 21st century science to how we manage this part of our healthcare system. Um, it, it puts people at risk, I believe, in a way, because people are stretched so far and and the kind of chaotic nature that can characterize the, the ED. I but, just want to emphasize, but, though, for the audience that even under the perfect circumstances, it is a very complicated uh, situation to diagnose a patient. It's not always, even now with all the information, uh, there are several patients just from this past weekend that I'm not certain that we have the final diagnosis on. So I would say so, go, so is going to the moon. So is going to the moon. So yeah. is a lot of other mission yeah. critical things. So is running a nuclear power plant. There are lots of things that are complex. There are things that, that are thrown at you. I just think we can do a lot a lot better job than we are. And it's not about, by the way, taking it away from doctors. It's about helping doctors and nurses to perform at ever higher levels because they've got the instrumentation, the data, the support around them so that they can do better. That that That's anyway a world that, that I think we might go to. But, but thanks Amen. for sharing that. Yeah, and there is some controversy about that number. That number seems to me to be a bit of an overestimate from the emergency medicine department. But... Uh, Anyway, there's probably more to come on that uh, as, as time passes. Sure. You've been listening to Health and Veritas with Harlan Kromoltz and Howie Foreman. So how did we do? To give us your feedback or to keep the conversation going, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at H-M-K-Y-A-L-E. That's H-M-K-Y-A-L. And I'm at the Howie. That's at 
T-H-E-H-O-W-I-E. I also want to give a quick shout out to my father who's turning 90 this week and wishing Merry Christmas and Happy New Year and Happy Hanukkah and, and any other holiday that you might be celebrating at this time. You can also email us at health.veritas at yale.edu. Aside from Twitter and our podcast, I'm fortunate to be the faculty director of the healthcare track and founder of the MBA for Executives program at the Yale School of Management. Feel free to reach out via email for more information on our innovative programs, or you can check out our website at som.yale.edu slash EMBA. And everyone should know that Howie's parents are truly amazing people, teachers, down to earth, just as you would expect. And uh, happy birthday, Mr. Foreman. Happy birthday. Uh, Health and Veritas is produced with the Yale School of Management. Thanks to our researcher, Jenny Tan, and to our producer, Miranda Schaefer. We are so fortunate to be working with them. Happy holidays to all of you, and talk to you soon, Howie. Thanks very much, Harlan. Happy holidays to you. Talk to you soon.